Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the 14th chapter of the book of Acts. And today we'll be looking at the first 19 verses. I was a little uh, full of myself when I thought I could do the whole chapter, but I don't think I can. And so we'll stop at verse 19 today as we look at a tale of three cities. Not two, three. And they are Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin in verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against their brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. One more verse. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas and Derby. Just a day in the life of the Apostle Paul, huh? This is God's Word. Uh, let us now seek our, the Lord who is the Spirit's help in understanding these words. Father, we thank you that 
we have the Bible, and the Bible is special revelation. The Bible helps us see who we are, and in relation to you, uh, who we are in relation to others, who we are in relation to this creation, and who you are, and how we can have a relationship with you, and how we can walk in ways that honor you, glorify you, please you, and keep us from self-destruction. Now, Father, we pray that the same Spirit who inspired this Word would give us enlightenment and illumination because living in this world, it's easy to lose focus. Grant us the understanding of your Word, and we will be careful to give you the praise and all the honor and glory, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, we are now... In Iconium, Paul and Barnabas traveled to Iconium, about a hundred miles southeast of Pisidian Antioch. And here we begin to see a key pattern of Paul's ministry as he goes place to place. He always chose the largest and most strategic cities in any new region, and he would begin a work there and from there work outward to smaller cities and villages. Iconium was a prosperous commercial city on the major east-west trade route. Today, it is called Kanya, Turkey's fourth largest urban area. Lystra, for example, was a smaller town, and it had a lot less sophisticated and educated population. And so as we look at Paul in verses 1 through 7 at Iconium, I want us to look at at his work there and the three main stages of his work in Iconium. In the first stage of the work, verse 1, Paul and Barnabas go, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue to preach the Gospels to the Jew first and then to the Gentile and everyone who believes. And so they were so effective that many believed, both Jews and Gentile God-fearers. And we can expect that the message Paul preached in the synagogue was very much like we just covered last week in chapter 13, heavy on the Bible, heavy on the knowledge of the Hebrew Bible, of the history of redemption, of the idea of covenant, uh, very heavy on authority, biblical themes, and morality. But in the second stage of the work, in verses 2 through 5, they preached outside of the synagogue in the face of very strong opposition during a period of rising tensions and animosities. On the one hand, their ministry was characterized by preaching the message of His grace, that is gospel. That's the good news. God saves by grace in no other way. I don't know if you've ever really thought about that. But the only way God saves people is by grace. It's never by merit. It's never by achievement. It's never a repayment for what we have earned. It's never an obligation when we put God in debt to ourselves for being good people. No, God saves people freely through grace. Unexpected, amazing favor shown toward us as He draws us to Himself by His grace, for we were truly, truly lost. 
And so in the preaching, there was an emphasis upon the grace of the gospel, and the preaching was very bold, and it was accompanied by an authenticating miracle or authenticating miracles. That is why miracles are so prevalent in the book of Acts. That is why miracles are so talked about is because they cluster around events when the gospel goes into a new territory. People have to ask, how do I know what he's saying is true? And so God would bring authentication uh, through miracles. And so, uh, on the other hand, though, over a significant period of time, Paul stayed there. And on the other hand, a group of Jews from the synagogues stirred up increasing opposition during this whole stretch. And finally, there was a plot to kill them, that is, the missionaries. Now, having already planted a church in Iconium, Paul and Barnabas now removed to the nearby cities of Lystra and Derbe. As mentioned in uh, what I've already said up front, these were smaller places. They lacked sophistication that a big metropolis would have. And the local Lyconians were largely uneducated and even illiterate. And they were very religious. As you can see, they thought Paul and uh, Barnabas were incarnate, incarnate, incarnated, excuse me, uh, Zeus and Hermes. So, some of the lessons that we can learn, or some of the principles that we can see here in general, the greater the effectiveness of a ministry, the greater the resistance and opposition. And I can give testimony to that. If you preach the gospel as it is given in the Bible, two things happen. Amazing freedom occurs as people respond to that, and they're delivered from their bondage, but it stirs up the evil one. It stirs up opposition. It stirs up legalists. It stirs up moralists. And they begin to come after you. And so there is, there is a resistance and opposition. And the, the closer you get to preaching uh, the purity of the gospel, in my judgment, the greater the resistance and the greater the opposition. And if you're not getting that, then you're probably not preaching the gospel. But Paul and Barnabas were especially effective in their ministry in Iconium, and the reaction was swift and severe. And we cannot infer that this is an absolute rule, but it does fit a general principle. Our words must be backed up with deeds. Because of the opposition, God gave the missionaries an especially effective ministry of miracles, which were ordinarily healings. In the same way, uh, we must be able to show the power of Christ to heal and help people, change lives and ministries to the psychological, social, and material needs. These all back up and certify, as it were, the preaching of the gospel and authenticate it. So we preach the gospel not only in word, but also in deeds as we welcome those in Christ, as Christ has welcomed us, as we reach out and take the gospel to people uh, in our spheres of influence, uh, we do so in both word and deed. I remember I went to a Zig Ziglar seminar one time. Does anybody know who Zig Ziglar is? He's a motivational speaker. 
and uh, it was also a Christian. And uh, so he was, he was giving, he, the only thing I remember the man said that made any sense to me the whole time, although he is the reason I ended up going to seminary, but God used him. But he said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. People don't care what you have to say until they under, the greatest apologetic is love. The greatest apologetic for the gospel is love. And so we see that God uses uh, these two apostles powerfully. And we see the miracles in the Bible are not random magic tricks, but are always closely connected to authenticating of the preaching of the gospel in a new region or place. It means that we should not expect to see miracles distributed everywhere and anywhere in the Christian church. We see that the gospel is essentially a message of grace, and even when the opposition seems to have stopped the ministry, God uses events to spread the gospel in new places. Now, it would have been easy under the intense pressure and opposition for Paul and Barnabas to take a hike, to leave. But they stayed there and continued to boldly preach the gospel. Well, we come to the next section, the healing of a crippled man in Lystra. And, you know, educated people seem to always have a tendency towards skepticism, especially when it comes to miracles, and even the supernatural, and even religion. And so often the uneducated have a great deal of belief and even obsession with such things. C.S. Lewis warned us of two opposite errors to, to uh, be made regarding demons. He said to disbelieve in them entirely or to have an unhealthy fascination and overinterest in them. We could call one superstition, overbelief, and the one substition, underbelief. The crowd's reaction is extreme and fanatical. They cry out in Lyconian, meaning that these are not the leading Roman citizens who would have spoken Latin nor are they educated people who have spoken some kind of Koine Greek, the language of the cosmopolitan culture. These are very common, salt-of-the-earth kind of people. And the miracle creates a sensation. And so they quickly assume that Paul and Barnabas are gods that have come to visit the earth. Local legend told of earlier occasions when the gods had come down to them in the likeness of men, Ovid tells a story of Philemon and Bacchus who entertained Zeus and Hermes unaware and were rewarded. And so having heard legends such as this, the people wanted the rewards that would result in honoring God, the gods in their midst. And all this shows that these were not educated, secularized pagans, but common, semi-literate, superstitious pagans and when we see Paul's gospel presentation it contrasts very much with the way he preached inside the synagogue as I've told you over and over again what we're learning as we go through the book of Acts is Paul never changes the core of the message but he changes the message in terms of how he communicates it to the audience, never tampering with the core, but starting out where people are. 
That is called incarnational ministry. You don't start people out where you are. You start them out where they are. You'll be a much more effective um, witness and evangelist in sharing the gospel with other people if you first listen to other people and find out where they are. I know that when I first learned how to present the gospel, I had a canned message. And so what I basically did when I went into a home to share the gospel, you know, they might have a hundred questions they wanted to ask me, but I had my canned message, and I, I would take control of the room and give them my canned message. And uh, I think if I had been some of them, I would have invited me to leave more quickly than they did. And of course you do that and you walk out the door rejoicing that you're suffering for Christ's sake, when in reality, what you've done is you haven't accurately read your audience. And so Paul knew who was sitting out there, and he knew what they believed. And so he adapts his mess uh, the uh, message, not by starting with everything a um, Hebrew believer would have in the bank, so to speak, uh, biblically and through knowledge, he starts where these people are, they're pagans, they're idolaters. And so he speaks to them in a very different way. It's likely that Paul and Barnabas did not understand at first that the crowds thought they were gods because they cried out, verse 11, in Lyconian, a dialect with which they were probably unfamiliar. This explains why the talk had progressed to the offering of sacrifices to them before they seemed to realize what was happening. And though what we have here is a brief digest or summary of Paul's talk, when you compare it with the prior chapter, Acts 13, 16 and following, it is very different in the way that he delivers his message. It is different in how he talks to these people. First, let's talk about some of those differences. They were different in the citations of authority for its argument or case. In Acts chapter 13, Paul appealed to two authorities recognized by his audience, the Scriptures and John the Baptist. But in Acts 14, these pagans do not know or trust the Hebrew Bible. They don't know who John the Baptist was. So Paul appeals to what they can see about the natural world around them. First, he points to the greatness of creation uh, and to the natural world around them to show them that this indicates there is a God who creates. God who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. If there's something, anything, something can't come from nothing. It is impossible for something to come from nothing. So if you see something, something caused it to be. And the only one who has the power to cause it to be has the power to cause himself to be. And so Paul is arguing here the nature of God. He's talking about the aseity of God, and he's talking about God's creation of all that they could see, and that by creation rights, they belong to him. And then he points to the greatness of providence, and how providence is God's general oversight 
of the creation he has made and his ruling in the creation he has made and how in the midst of the immense forces of nature they nevertheless were given food and joy. They are given what is necessary for life. In other words, Paul does not take the Hebrew Scriptures to this particular group in this particular town and reason from the Scripture called special revelation by the theologians, but from what people can see about the nature of the world and life called general revelation. Now, there are limitations granted to general revelation, but Paul is starting and attempting to connect with his audience. Essentially, Paul reasons like this. Look at this and this and this about your world and your life. I can account for them. These things are there because there is a God who made and manages everything in the universe. It takes more blind faith to believe anything else. But there is a God. God's name was Yahweh. And Yahweh means I am what I am, or I be what I be, literally, is what Yahweh means. And so when Moses saw the burning bush, and the bush not being consumed by the fire, a voice came from the bush. Moses asked him his name. He said, my name is Yahweh. Some say Jehovah, but Yahweh is more accurate. And so what Yahweh means is I am the one who causes everything to be. Everything is, exists, has its being out of me and is contingent and dependent upon me. He, he's doing something that's elementary and yet highly significant. I, I think he's a genius and obviously full of the Holy Spirit as he makes this message known. Notice though they, the two crowds that Paul preaches to in uh, Acts 13 and 14 were very different. And Paul's emphasis and time spent on points of gospel content. It's hard to miss that in Acts 13 his sermon talked little about the nature of God and much more about the person and work of Christ. In Acts 14 most of the stress is on the nature of God and Paul shows that there are not many gods each of who has a limited region and a specific range of power but only one God who made everything and who had absolute power over everything and so this abstract of his speech shows that Paul did allude to Christ when he said in, in the past he let all nations go their own way this means that now something significant and momentous has occurred. And in chapter 17 of Acts, he will say, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent by the man he has appointed. So just as in Acts 17, uh, he probably spoke about one whom God had sent into this world to accomplish redemption. So Paul in Acts 13 could assume that his crowd in the synagogue knew who God was in general and he could focus on the features of Jesus, but in Acts 14 he had to lay foundation of the nature of God and he gives a little less time to developing the work of Christ in this particular case. He's doing apologetics, but he's laying a foundation. I'm a little bothered sometimes with these what I call drive-by gospel presentations. 
And I don't want to criticize the people. That's not what I'm here for and what I want to do. But it bothers me sometimes because it could easily lead to easy believism. Ask Christ into your heart. You know, you, you see the world's in chaos. Ask Christ into your heart. Well, they don't even know who God is. I mean, we are living in post-Christendom culture. We live in a very postmodern culture, and ignorance of the Bible is massive in our world. I mean, people don't know one end from the other when it comes to any kind of theological uh, underpinnings or foundations. And so Paul is very careful here in this to give these people a foundation of the nature of God because why? They were idolaters. They were worshiping false gods. And third, they were different in the specifics of the final pill. In Acts 13, Paul tells people to stop relying on the law for their justification with God and look to the work of Christ. This is the gospel for moral people, for religious people. Paul is saying sin makes you unperfect, unjustified, and receive Jesus for forgiveness. In Acts 14, however, the people are told to stop worshiping worthless idols. Worthless things or idols. The word translated worthless means vain or ineffective. The people are told to stop serving false gods that cannot satisfy the hunger and thirst of their souls. This is the gospel for immoral people or irreligious people. Paul is saying sin makes you a slave in bondage and unfulfilled. Receive Christ for reality and freedom. Paul characterizes God as living as opposed to the deadness of the false gods. He identifies God as the source of joy as opposed to the emptiness and vanity of their false gods. To whom would Paul make such a talk today? It would be appropriate for very irreligious people, and especially for the more immoral and less educated types. Why? Well, such people cannot be talked to from Scripture. They are very aware of being in bondage to various false gods, that is, through addictions and habits that they cannot break. And they need to have God pointed to as more powerful than their secular bondages or their bondages and as the source of joy that they really seek. So when secular people, we have to begin where people are to find out what we see about the world and life that they also see too. For example, secular people see human beings have value, but they cannot account for it unless they acknowledge God as the source of it. In other words, we will have to reason as Paul did. We may have to start with a human longing for love and community and a sense of belonging, for personal significance and meaning, and for freedom. In any case, we will point to Christ, who is both the explanation and solution for everything we have. I uh, wanted to talk a minute about idolatry because I think it is such a helpful category in our day and time and culture to help people understand their sin and their alienation and estrangement from God. Uh, 
probably, if I had to summarize the Bible, I don't want to be guilty of reductionism, but there's a struggle in the Bible between true faith and idolatry. The Ten Commandments, first two and most basic laws, that is one-fifth of God's law to humankind, are against idolatry. Exodus does not, in the book of Exodus, it does not envision any third option between faith and idolatry. We will either worship the uncreated God or we will worship some created thing. We cannot not worship. I know that's a triple negative or double, but we can't help ourselves. We are made in the image of God and we will worship something. We will see the worth in something and give ourselves to it in order to find worth in ourselves. And so that's what people do. That's how we're wired. Uh, there is no possibility of our worshiping nothing. Uh, Romans 1, 18-25 is a passage on idolatry. We're not going to go there, but let me say a few things quickly. Uh, the, it, it refers mostly to pagan Gentiles, but we should recognize it as an analysis of what sin is and how it works. Verse 21 tells us that the reason we turn to idols is because we want to control our lives. Though we know that we owe God everything, we do not give Him thanks. We have a strategy for control, taking created things and setting our hearts on them, building our lives around them since we need and must worship something. Because of how we're created, we cannot eliminate God without creating God's substitutes. Everybody on Sunday and every other day is worshiping someone or something. You can't help it. You may say, I'm an atheist. You're worshiping someone or something. Whatever we worship, we will serve. For worship and service are always inextricably bound together. We are covenantal beings. We enter into covenant service with whatever most captures our imagination and heart. It ensnares us. It doesn't give us liberty and freedom. It ensnares us. It puts us in bondage. And so... Uh, every human personality, community, thought form, and culture will be based on some ultimate concern or some ultimate allegiance, either to God or some God substitute. Individually, we will uh, ultimately look either to God or to success or romance or family or status or popularity or beauty or leadership to make us feel personally significant and secure and to guide our choices. You know, people always, you know, this understanding what the Bible teaches about uh, idolatry did a number on my good intentions because I always thought when I went into the ministry, I have good intentions. Don't question my motives. I have good intentions for doing what I do. And I ran over a lot of people doing that. But let me tell you something. I don't have good intentions until I learn to look at why I do what I do and what idols may be behind me driving me to do what I want to do. Maybe I do something good in the church because I like approval of people. And so I'm really just doing something good to be seen by people in the church to be approved of and thought of as a good guy. That's not good. That's sin. That is sin. High-handed sin. 
And so we should be suspicious of our motives because of the ever-present challenge of idolatry. So, uh, no one grasps the concept of idolatry better than Martin Luther, who ties the Old Testament and New Testament together in his exposition of the Ten Commandments. Luther saw that the Old Testament law against idols and the New Testament emphasis on justification by faith are essentially the same thing. He said that in the Ten Commandments, we begin with two commandments against idolatry because it is a fundamental problem in lawbreaking, and that fundamental problem is always idolatry. In other words, we never break the other commandments without first breaking the law against idolatry. Luther understood that the first commandment is really about justification by faith, and to fail to believe in justification by faith is idolatry, which is the root of everything that displeases God. All those who do not at all times trust God and do not in all their works of sufferings, life and death, trust in His favor, grace, and goodwill, but seek His favor in other things in themselves, do not keep the first commandment and practice real idolatry, even if they were to do all the works of other commandments, and in addition had all prayers, obedience, patience, and chastity of all the saints combined. <laughs> For the chief work is not present without which all the others are nothing but mere sham, show, pretense, with nothing behind them. If we doubt or do not believe that God is gracious to us and pleased with us, or if we presumptuously expect to please Him only through and after our works, then it is all pure deception and outwardly honoring God, but inwardly setting up a false Savior. But I want to take this discussion a little forward in time and space history. One of the things I think that we need to capture again is how idolatry so characterizes the postmodern culture that we live in. Um, have you ever talked to any of your postmodern friends and you try to talk to them about sin uh, and and postmodern people, probably anyone who's been to the university in the last 25 years, have been influenced by postmodernism. Uh, are one thing they're acutely aware of. Uh, postmodern people rightly believe that much harm has been done by self-righteous people. If we say sin is breaking God's law to a postmodern person. Without a great deal of further explanation, it appears that the pharisaical people they have known are in and most other people are out. Pharisees, of course, are quite fastidious in their keeping of the moral law, and therefore to the hearer they seem to be the very essence of what a Christian ought to be. An emphasis on idolatry avoids this problem. As Luther points out, Pharisees, while not bowing down to literal idols, were looking to themselves and their moral goodness for their justification. And therefore, they were actually breaking the first commandment. Their morality was self-justifying motivation. And Christianity is not morality, by the way. It never has been. Their morality was self-justifying motivation and therefore spiritually pathological. At the bottom of all their law-keeping, they were actually breaking the most fundamental law of all. When we give definitions and descriptions of sin 
to people in our culture today, we must do so in a way that not only challenges prostitutes to change, but also Pharisees to repent of their righteousness. But there's another reason when preaching and sharing the gospel with postmodernism that we need to be aware of how effective idolatry is. Most postmodern people are pure relativists. And the moment, you know, there's no absolutes. Who are you to say this is true? Who are you to define truth? Who are you to tell me what moral position to take? Uh, Everybody has their own truth. Everybody has truth with a small T, not a capital T. Truth, your truth is totally shaped by the community in which you live and uh, the shaping of your life by other things. And so if we say God is breaking God's moral standards, uh, sin is breaking God's moral standards, they will say, well, who are you to say what morals standards are right? Everyone has different ones. What makes Christian thinks that they only have the right set of moral standards? Now, the usual way we would respond to that is go into apologetics about relativism, and that ain't really helping anybody at that point. Of course, you know, people must be challenged, strongly challenged, about their mushy view of truth. But before you get into apologetic issues, there's a man by the name of Soren Kierkegaard in his book, The Sickness Unto Death, and he defines sin as building your identity, your self-worth, and happiness on anything other than God. Instead of telling them they're sinning because they're sleeping with their girlfriends or boyfriends, I tell them they're sinning because they are looking to their careers and their romances to save them and to give them everything that they should be looking for. This idolatry leads to drivenness, addiction, severe anxiety, obsessiveness, envy of other people, and resentment. So when you describe people's lives in terms of idolatry, There's very little resistance that can be offered. And it makes sin much more personal. Making an idol out of something means you give it the love you should be giving your creator and your sustainer. To depict sin not only as a violation of law, but also of love is much more compelling. Of course, a complete description of sin and grace includes a recognition that we do rebel against God's authority. But if people are convicted about their sin, one of the things I notice in talking to unbelieving people is they're in denial about their hostility toward God. In some ways, idolatry is like addiction writ large. We are ensnared by our spiritual idols, just like people are ensnared by drink and drugs. We live in denial of how much we're rebelling against God's law, just like addicts live in denial of how much they're trampling on their families and their loved ones. So that's why Paul, in the face of uneducated pagans, makes the case, as it were, for preaching the gospel uh, to these pagans. And, and P- Paul does not change the gospel at Iconium and Lystra. He adapts it. And this is the very key to effective ministry. 
If we never adapt the gospel, we will be completely ineffective. Like Paul, we must deeply discern the particular beliefs, hopes, aspirations, fears, prejudices, and wisdom of others, or we, uh, or our gospel communication will seriously miss the target. Like Paul, we must not shrink from declaring that there really is only one true God, that every single person, no matter how nice and good, is sinfully trying to be his or her own Lord and Savior, that Jesus really was divine and human, that he died in our place for our sins, was raised bodily from the dead. These basic truths are non-negotiable. Yet we've got to speak in language people understand. I mean, God deigns, but Calvin called the Bible baby talk. He said it's, it's like God lisping to a little child, doing baby talk to a child. Think of the intellectual power of God Almighty. And yet he deigns to condescend to speak to us in categories and ways we can understand. And if you look at the teaching of Jesus, it was so very simple and understandable to every level of people. He wasn't trying to wow us with his gifts. He's trying to save us from our sins. And that's what he did. But whether you're a religious person and you're trying to get to that point in your life where the penny drops where you feel like, okay, I finally got everything together, I finally got my family in order, I'm doing okay in my career, and I'm going to church regularly, and I read the Bible maybe a couple of times a week, and I pray God must surely approve of me now, you're violating the first commandment, the first two commandments, because you have an idol in your heart that you're worshiping. Or if you're a person, who is constantly striving to find fulfillment, trying to feed the beast inside, find some sense of satisfaction and joy out of life through the use of any kind of substances. You can do it shopping. You can do it in a hobby. You can do it in a career. You know what a workaholic is? He's an idolater. Or he's got problems at home and he doesn't want to go home, one of the two which is another idol. But that's what we are. But we can be delivered through Jesus Christ. And as we look at the back book of Acts and evaluate the message, this is what we come down to. So how about you? Have you ever repented of your self-righteousness of trying to be your own Lord and Savior? Or have you ever recognized that your heart is worshiping someone or something else and turned away from that and turned to the living God. That is the gospel. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today for the message we have heard out of Acts chapter 14. We pray that we might understand more deeply how to be those who share the gospel effectively with people around us and in our culture. Sometimes it's almost as if we're speaking uh, in a way with categories that people in our world just can't see. And so we pray that we would in no way ever compromise the essence and core of the gospel, but that we might be able to adapt our communication style to those who are listening.
Now, Father, we pray your blessings upon us as we continue to worship you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.